Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. This is John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35. This is going to be a little bit of repeat from last week, uh, picking up where we left off. It says, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given to me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The word of God for the people of God. So I'm just going to let you guys know right off, of, um, right off of the front here that this week I struggled mightily with this passage. I'm not entirely sure if this internal wrestling was due to the complexity of, of the text and the difficult concepts that it brings about or just my general headspace going into this week and into my preparation. I had a colonoscopy on Wednesday, which is always a rousing good time. Little side note, Josh Trivia here. One of the first times anybody ever gave me a microphone to preach the gospel. This is after my um, first debacle where I preached for about four and a half minutes and then didn't know what to do. So we just prayed and dismissed early. I've come a long way since then, huh? Um, in my second 
message ever delivered, I talked about my colonoscopy and how the body was failing and fading away from Corinthians. I think I have the audio of that. Maybe I'll post it for, for just for good times. Um, as I've mentioned before, though, this passage, it's part of a very long teaching in the Gospel of John. It's known as the Bread of Life Discourse. It takes up some 50 verses in the book where Jesus is talking to, um, to an audience. Scholars note the difficulty of breaking this passage up into its component parts, and even if you could, isolating 10 or so verses, it effectively removes that passage from its larger context, which makes it nearly impossible to deal with in in any meaningful way. So for our own sanity and so for our work here tonight, I think it would be good for us to give a view from about 30,000 feet so that we can understand what Jesus is talking about in these verses as we just read them. In John's gospel, the verses that we looked at, they're they're part of um, Jesus' teaching to a group of interlocutors who had followed him from the site of the feeding of the 5,000, that classic story where in John's gospel, Jesus takes five loaves and two fish that has been donated from a little boy and miraculously feeds 5,000 people with that small lunch. This is depicted earlier in chapter six. And this group, they follow him to the other side of the sea that we know Jesus has walked um, towards his disciples and gotten with them in the boat. And then the boat teletransports, according to John, basically from one point to the other point. They got in boats and followed him there to see what in the world was going on. And even more so, they went to follow him so that they could see another sign being performed. They went to see another miracle. And Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John, he's a really intuitive guy. He knew that their true desire was not to follow him. It was not to change their ways. It was not to transform. It was not to align with the teachings of Jesus, but rather they were hoping to get another free meal. They were hoping to get more bread. So Jesus is recorded as saying, very truly, I tell you, you look for me, not because you saw signs. Remember all throughout John's gospel, this, uh, this nomenclature of signs is important and it almost like frames the, the teaching of the book. But these people weren't coming because they saw signs according to Jesus, but because they ate their fill of the loaves. In the parlance of my good friend, Kelly Black, it's as if Jesus is saying to his audience, do better. Stop chasing a meal. Instead, believe me, trust me, align your lives with me. Don't work for bread that spoils. It's cheap, it's temporary. It will leave you wanting. It's insufficient for your needs. According to Jesus, he says, I have something better for you, namely me. He says, stop doing what you're doing and start working for the food that endures to eternal life. Now, sadly, these people that Jesus is talking to, they're a lot like us, and they don't quite understand what he's talking about. They keep pushing back at his words. They keep refocusing his attention on physical, literal, tangible bread. And ultimately, they begin to compare Jesus's work with Moses's work. They even quote some scripture to make their point. They say, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Now, if this is going to make any sense, this passage that this group of people are throwing in Jesus's face, we have to understand the backstory to this. We're not quite sure if this text is taken from Exodus or if it's taken from Psalms, scholars debate, because it's not a direct citation of scripture, even though it's introduced as a direct citation. There's different pieces, but it's all pushing back to the Exodus story. And if you can refresh your memory, Israel is leaving Egypt, the place of their suffering and servitude, the place where they have been enslaved. And Yahweh has demonstrated his power over all the other gods. In fact, in that story, it is almost like a contest of strength between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and all of the gods of the Egyptians, who systematically, one by one, Yahweh just does away with. And we see this in the plagues and how God is seemingly defeating all of the gods of the Egyptians. Yahweh had also just split the sea into two different sections so that Israel can walk through on dry land. Remember, as an army, uh, they, were being, they were pursuing Israel and they were pinned in between a land with the Egyptian army in front of them and the sea behind them. And God supernaturally, miraculously splits the sea into two so that the Israelites are able to go through on dry land. And somewhat problematic for us, Yahweh also kills Israel's captors. For a 21st century American context, when we read a story like this, we begin to uh, accuse God of being violent and malevolent in these sorts of texts. For an ancient audience, they would not have heard this. In fact, when we see Israel on the other side and their slain captors uh, emerging from the waters, they sing and they dance and they praise Yahweh for his powerful and timely intervention. Now, here's where it gets really interesting in the retelling of this story. It's not a few verses later after the song of the sea when Israel has rejoiced and sang to God and danced in his presence and, and just exclaimed his goodness for delivering them. They begin to grumble and complain about a lack of provision. They say things like, Moses, did you lead us out here in the wilderness to die? Would that we go back to Egypt where at least we knew where our food was coming from. We have absolutely no context for understanding these people and what they were dealing with, but for them in the moment, disregarding the miraculous work of God and now finding themselves beginning to grumble and complain and wanting to go back into slavery and servitude. And God again begins to provide for these people. He gives them water in the wilderness. Some scholars even think that there's some really cool Jewish traditions about a movable well that follows Israel in the wilderness where they can draw water and sustenance from. This is also where we begin to see God giving to his people manna bread from heaven that would show up every day uh, but the Sabbath. And the day before the Sabbath, you were to provide for your family two portions so that you would be able to eat both on the day of preparation and on the Sabbath day. God is miraculously providing for his people. They get petty and they say, we don't want bread anymore. We're tired of bread. So God gives them quail so that they can have meat to eat. So when the audience says to Jesus, he gave them bread from heaven to eat, they're recalling this story. 
Probably not so much the grumbling portion, though if you read John chapter 6, these, these Jewish interlocutors, they are grumbling amongst themselves, whining because Jesus has not done enough or provided enough signs or miracles for them. They embody this ancient people that they look and act very similar to in the same way, friends, that we also do. But they're recalling this story of the Exodus, this pivotal moment in Jewish history going back. And they say, we want to eat just like our ancestors. We want you to be Moses who provides for us. Do it again, Jesus. Do it again. Now, according to Jesus, this is a very unfortunate and limited reading of the Old Testament. Now, here's our nerd note for the evening. Some scholars have noticed that Jesus's response to his audience's use of the Old Testament text, where they say he gave them bread from heaven to eat, that line, that bit of scripture, it forms the basis for Jesus's sermon that he is preaching from verses 35 and following, where he's giving the bread of life discourse. And once they started to dissect this sermon, the scholars that is, they noticed that Jesus is reinterpreting the biblical text that his conversation partners use to accuse him. And Jesus, the way that he is reinterpreting this, it elicits or it evokes the Jewish interpretive style known as midrash. As a term, it's based on the Hebrew root darash, which you can see highlighted here in the, in the slide. And that root, it means usually to seek, to inquire, to examine, or to investigate. But what's interesting about this particular word is it takes on a new and technical character in the post-exilic period. Language moves and it breathes people. It doesn't say stagnant. And what happens with this word here, darash, it's leading us towards a more technical understanding within the Jewish community of what it looks like to do midrash. In a sense, they began to seek God through the scriptures. It's like expository preaching, but much more interesting and creative. It's kind of like what we do here each week where we take the text and we rip it apart. But all we're trying to do is understand what it meant back then. And for people like Jesus and the Jews in the first century and following, what they were attempting to do is to give it new life, new meaning, to breathe within the words a contemporary application. It's a rereading for the sake of the current audience. Indeed, at its core, Midrash is sermonic. It's homiletic and it's tied to a close reading of the biblical text. If you ever get a chance, friends, this is so cool. And I don't know why I've started calling you friends, but over the last few weeks, I've been doing that. I've been reading a lot of Brene Brown, maybe. I don't know if that's where that's coming from, but, uh, or I've been hanging out with um, Jude's two-year-old class over at Asbury, and the teacher there always talks to her friends, the two-year-olds. That's pretty demeaning now that I say it out loud. I'm not gonna do that anymore, even though I think we are friends. It's a rereading for the sake of the current audience. Um, it's, it's closely tied to a reading of the biblical text. And yeah, I, I was on a diatribe there. I don't remember what I was talking about. They got me going. Once I started thinking about Jude's class, it was, it was all over. Oh, if you ever have a chance to see how Jesus is actually interacting with the Old Testament text in the Gospels, do it. Read those passages because they don't make any sense. 
If you heard a sermon on what, how Jesus was preaching, you'd say, what was that guy smoking? Because we don't understand first century Jewish interpretation, which is what Jesus is doing. And he does it really, really well. His interpretation, it goes like this. For his, uh, his conversation partners, they say he gave them bread from heaven to eat. But for Jesus, the he isn't Moses. In other, in other words, he would say, you guys are misreading the text. Let me go ahead and walk you through this, uh, this transition here. So for his, his audience, they would have said the he in this original passage in the Bible was Moses. Moses was the one that was giving bread to the people. And it wasn't some kind of bread that was uh, ethereal or symbolic. It was actual bread, like rip it in half and eat it bread, dip it in oil and vinegar bread, put it in some butter and put it in the, in the oven, melt it bread, maybe even throw some garlic on it, bread. Are you guys hungry yet? Okay, so he, he's saying Moses, or the, his conversation partner is saying Moses gave them real bread from heaven to eat, but Jesus is pushing back on this interpretation and saying, no, actually, you're misreading the text. Moses didn't give them anything. God gave them bread. And this is actually found in Exodus as well, so the people's interpretation is selective in that they were looking for another Moses to show up and to provide for them. And Jesus is saying, no, you're misreading the text. God is giving bread. And friends, it is not bread that you dip in oil and vinegar. It is not bread that you put into the oven with butter. It is not bread that you put a little bit of garlic salt on. No, the bread is me. The way that you're talking about bread, it's wrong, he says. It's not just real bread. It's not just manna. It's me. I'm the bread, the one who is standing right in front of you. You're reading this text as if you're expecting Moses to show up again and to provide for your needs and to give you more bread in the wilderness. And if that's the case, I have bad news for you, Jesus is saying. Or actually, if you want to spin it, Jesus has really good news for those who have ears to hear it. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now left on our own, just a side note here, when we hear things like this, this is where the gospel of John gets so difficult. This is why it's called the spiritual gospel because it's not able to be parsed out in ways that make sense to us all the time. What do you mean, Jesus, that we won't have to eat bread again? What does it mean that we will never thirst again? Now back to Midrash and ancient Jewish interpretive history. When we look at the records of how people dealt with this passage and other passage, it provides evidence that rereading texts like this in the way that Jesus and his, his audience are doing, it's fair game. More than that, it was expected and desired and emulated. If you went to church, so to speak, and you had somebody up front with a microphone and really cool sneakers, then you would expect them to do this with the Old Testament, to breathe new life into it based on a close reading of of the actual text. This is what good teachers do. Check this out. This could be a sermon in and of itself, but I actually have three or four sermons in and of themselves tonight because, you know, I'm trying to keep us close on time this evening. The Old Testament history, it wasn't recorded for its own sake. It wasn't pristine. It wasn't untouchable. 
Its teaching was meant to permeate the reader's current context. It was meant to be applied and to be reapplied. In fact, earlier versions of the passage had already been reread like this. The manna in the wilderness is actually the Torah. This is a common trope within Jewish interpretation. It's the law. It's the thing that God had given to his people. It's meant to be consumed. It's meant to, to sustain you. The Torah, the teaching of God is, is, is radical for his people. Other people saw the manna in the wilderness, not just as Torah, but they saw it as wisdom. Wisdom perhaps personified wisdom as the goal of, of they wouldn't put it this way, but I'm going to, because it makes sense to you guys. And, and it's the goal of a relationship with Yahweh that you receive wisdom, that you enact wisdom, that you become wise in your life. Or for others, they believed that this manna in the wilderness, it prefigured God's eschatological provision for his people. Doesn't that just sound fancy? They're thinking that this manna, it prefigures how God is going to provide for his people eschatologically in the end, in the future, as history is moving to its, fancy word, telos, to its goal, to its culminating point where God is moving the story of history in a certain way. And we see how he provides for his people in the wilderness as hints of how he will provide for his people climactically, finally, momentously. Any cool big adjective you have, in the end. So some people, Jewish interpreters, they were looking at different ways of exploring what the manna in the wilderness actually was and actually looked like. And now Jesus, he adds to this interpretive tradition by saying the bread, it's not Torah, not simply, it's not wisdom, not simply, it's not eschatological provision, it's me. It's the son of God incarnate, in history, who's offering himself for the people that he is talking to. And these people don't really understand what Jesus is saying is, if you believe in me, this is a big point, so stick with me for the next 45 seconds to five minutes. I don't know, because I didn't get the chance to go over it. He's saying, if you believe in me, and not just academically, not just theoretically, not just mentally, no, if you actually align yourself with me, what he's saying to these conversation partners, you'll never hunger again. If you follow me like I'm asking people and inviting people into, you will never hunger or thirst. The thirst bit there, is an, it's an extra unforeseen bonus because Jesus is talking about bread the entire time and now he throws in this twist. Oh, you won't be hungry anymore and bonus. You also won't thirst anymore. I was listening to a sermon earlier this week and somebody said something like, imagine that, not having to drink anymore. And I immediately got sad. And I started thinking like, oh, no. Like that's not, that's not what he's talking about here, people. I also like bread too. Don't immediately go to pastor as a, a alcoholic because that's not where, where we're going here. But to explore and to, to uh, appreciate the good gifts of God, I think is important. That's not actually what we see here. But Jesus continues, for anybody who believes and trusts, locates their center of existence with me, follows me, is about what I'm about, they'll have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. 
Now, I know that this is kind of a, a jumbly mess for us because of our distance from Jewish Midrash. We don't typically understand the text in this way, nor do we see examples of this happening in the pulpit or in, uh, in the interpretive practice. But this sermon, if you hear it, it's getting good. Now, look, I want to tell you something because, again, this is probably sermon number two that should have had its own week, but we really got to get through John at some point. What's happening here I think is oftentimes missed on us. This reading that Jesus is offering, it's completely new. It's radical. It demands boldness and risk-taking to accept it. He's going outside of the bounds of what his audience understands and what they realize to be true. And what Jesus is expecting from his people is that they'll be able to go with him in this passage, actually, at the end of John chapter 6, when Jesus is done talking, they begin to say, this is a hard teaching. Who can follow it? And then half the group leaves. Maybe they want a more traditional rabbi. Maybe they want someone who won't quite upset their interpretive traditions as much as Jesus is. Maybe, maybe they don't want somebody who's making these big, bold claims that Jesus is making but again, on the other side, with our leather-bound NIVs in our hands, we don't see the risk that these people were taking. We don't see the risk of the 12 disciples. We don't see the risk of the people who were putting their life on the line to follow a homeless Jewish rabbi and staking everything that they have in him. Now stick with me here a bit, because this, I believe, is also new, especially for folks who have a background in the church. Jesus says in this passage that anyone who believes in me, they'll have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. Now, when we churched folks hear the phrase eternal life, perhaps for my 40 and ups, we start seeing flannel graphs. Perhaps we hear altar calls Perhaps we hear the organ being fired up in the background and just as I am played over the loudspeakers. Maybe for a bit of our younger folks, you see low lights and just enough fog where the beams of those really expensive lights show down onto the stage and you hear the swell of music, perhaps a nice volume pedal on the Telecaster. That was for you, Jory. We see heads bowed and eyes closed, and we see arms raised, hoping to get into heaven when we die. But before we get there, and perhaps if, if we move away from some of the PTSD that that might incite for some of you, I want to check in and actually see what's going on in the context in which John is writing. Our good friend N.T. Wright notes that in this context, eternal life is the quality of life. It's sharing the inner life of Jesus that is on offer at once to anyone who believes. He's not talking about eternal life somewhere out there once you die. He's talking about eternal life here as a quality of life. He goes on to say, eternal tells you what sort of life it is, as well as the fact that it goes on after death. Here's the really important part that I'm going to spend a little bit of time on. It's the life of the age to come, the new life which God has always planned to give the world is what is on offer here, and it doesn't begin 
when you die, it begins right now. Perhaps you've seen this slide and perhaps anybody who knows me knows exactly where I'm going because I talk about this all of the time. In the Jewish mindset, they had a linear version of of what was happening. They had this age and the age to come. The age to come would be ushered in when Messiah showed up and gets rid of all of the Roman oppressors or whoever else was oppressing the people at that time. And they they would enter into this new, perfect, if you will, life on earth. But Jesus upsets the balance by beginning to offer eternal life here and now to his people. And he initiates this hybrid sort of moment where it's not just this age and then the age to come. It's this age and the age to come all at once. Because when you follow Jesus, what he allows you to do is to have eternal life, which is a commentary on the sort or quality of life that you now have in this moment. Now, I'm going to stop here for a moment because when you compare my preaching to others, like a get you emotionally invested and ready for the week type of preacher or an overly practical, let's devote five weeks on our uh, personal finances type of preacher, it might be found wanting because maybe not a few of you would say things like, well, you know what? I listen to Josh and we were talking about inaugurated eschatology and I just feel like I'm, I'm just, it's just really deep. It's really demanding. It's really contextual theology. And now I feel fueled up and ready for the week. I could go make some sales. I could go handle those first graders that, that I'm teaching. I can sell a lot of popcorn now at the movies. I can, I can close on some clients. I'm ready to go because inaugurated eschatology. But for me, I hate to break it to you. If you need someone who's going to talk about finances for five weeks, and if you need someone who's going to pump you up and motivate you for the week to come, this is the best I got. Because in my way of thinking, inaugurated eschatology is truly life transforming. When you understand that heaven is invading earth and we get to participate in it, not only do we get to experience it, we get to build it. We get to share it. We get to live it and breathe it and invite people into it. I don't know how that doesn't motivate you. Because King Jesus is saying, you don't have to wait until you die. It's here for the taking. All you have to do is believe and trust and have bread that doesn't go bad. You'll never thirst again, even though you get to drink good stuff. He's offering something that is completely transformative. Do you hear what N.T. Wright is saying? Do you hear why I'm so sweaty and I'm jumping around and really out of shape? He's saying the out there stuff, the when you die stuff, the altar call stuff, the heaven stuff, it's happening right in front of you. The life of the age to come, it's here, it's now. The goal is not an ethereal heaven where you get to float off to at some point as a disembodied spirit. Rather, the goal is the life that God has planned for all of us and it's invading earth now. Which means if I can just connect some of these dots for you. And here, 
I don't know what your profession is. I actually do, I know most of you. But let this inform you and let this motivate you. All of this means that you, whoever you are, wherever you've come from, whatever you bring with yourself into this space, you are invested with worth. Your work is invested with worth. I don't care if you're just selling popcorn at the movies. I don't care if you are teaching kids at a public school. I don't care if you are the CEO of a Fortune 500 business. I don't care what you do. Your work is invested with worth. Your conversations are invested with worth. When you're at Rise Up drinking those iced caramel lattes, and whoever you're talking to, when you can refocus and point them to what's eternal, meaning to what sort or quality of life we can have now, it's invested with worth. Your projects are invested with, with worth because they contribute to the overall plan of God's restoration of this place. Now, not to jump the gun on Lent here, but I should also add, because sometimes we, we uh, border on removing all of the somewhere out there to this whole matrix. I should add that when Jesus announces, as he does in this passage, that we will be raised up in the last days, he's also claiming that we, like him, will be resurrected. And this, too, has ramifications for everything that we do. So uh, according to Paul, what this means is Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection because he has been raised. We too will be raised to new life. We will participate with him in the restoration of all things. There is a future for us. There's also a future for this place. We're not leaving it behind. I don't believe that the future is out there somewhere Paul, in fact, says that creation, the very dust and dirt that makes up this place, is groaning with anticipation for the king of kings to make it all right. This place that we inhabit, it will be restored. It will not be discarded. And we too, we will be restored. We won't be ghosts floating off into another world we will be resurrected. So with all deference to the pump you up pastors and the five sermons on your marriage pastors, this message in my mind is completely transformative. This message is hopeful and you don't have to keep coming back for more and more and more. Let this transform you. Let this inspire you. Let this motivate you. Jesus is a really good preacher here in this passage. There's so much for us to consider, but maybe you've been sidetracked. I doubt it, but initially in that early reading, I've got a couple people in mind here as I was thinking about this. Maybe you've been sidetracked because maybe you've heard some of the claims in this passage that seem to smack of exclusivism or predeterminism or even worse, Calvinism. That was a joke for the nerds. Again, I'm like 0 for 9 here tonight with my theological comedy. I will not be taking this show on the road. You will see all of my good stuff and bad stuff. 
It's texts like this, though, where it says, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Or no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Or this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but will raise them up at the last day. I'm not here to engage those century-old debates on philosophical and theological systems, but I do think that this is important for us to note as we look at this context of this passage. And this is the fourth and final sermon that I'm going to preach to you this evening. In this passage, Jesus is not just reinterpreting one Old Testament text about who's giving what sort of bread to the people He's also appealing to the book of Isaiah, which the book of Isaiah is really one of my favorite books in the Bible because it has within its covers three distinct contexts within. In Isaiah 1 through 39, you've got Isaiah ben Amos, the 8th century prophet who is looking pre-exile, saying, you guys better repent, you guys better understand what's going on. And then when you turn the chapter into Isaiah 40, it's like 150 years later, exile has happened, destruction has happened, Israel is depleted, and they are at, at their very end, not knowing what to do, which is when God shows up and says, comfort in the midst of your tragedy, in the midst of your brokenness, comfort. You think that there is no plan, but I have a plan for you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. In fact, I have you etched in the palms of my hands. You've been through something horrific, but I have not forsaken you. Then in Isaiah 56 through 66, they go back into the land. They go back to, to where uh, they're from, and they begin to look around and say, this isn't really what we thought it was gonna be and we don't know what to do with it. The passage that Jesus is looking at is, is embedded within this middle context where Israel is in the midst of their own exile. They've been removed from the land. They don't know who they are anymore. They don't know if they're going to come back. They don't know if God cares about them. And in the midst of those chapters, God is saying over and over, trust me, I'm not done with you yet. And the fact that Jesus is appealing to this section, it's important for us. He's hinting, and it's, it's a massive hint, when he says that you'll never be hungry and you'll never be thirsty. He's hinting to these chapters in Isaiah where God is saying, I'm still with you. Comfort, comfort. This is made explicit when Jesus quotes from Isaiah 54 in this same dialogue. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. It's written in the prophets. It's written in Isaiah chapter 54. They will all be taught by God. And Jesus is appealing to this larger context. He's specifically looking at the fact that in this passage, Israel was completely dependent upon the activity of their God. Without his divine initiative, they would not have been removed from exile. They would have been left alone to die in foreign land. But God says, not on my watch. By using this larger context, Jesus's use of Isaiah, it appeals to the fact that Israel is dependent upon the activity of God when in exile. Without God's activity, without God's saving initiative, deliverance would not have come. And this is true for us as well. Everyone who follows Jesus 
is dependent upon the divine initiative that brings salvation. These passages that smack of exclusivism or Calvinism, they're not so much an exclusive claim of who is in, but it's an exclusive claim of the source of our salvation. God draws us all in, in the midst of our exiles, in the midst of our brokenness, in light of our need. But the invitation for us to receive that is for everyone. One final quote, N.T. Wright says this, God's initiative is always balanced in the Bible with an open and free appeal. Anyone at all who is thirsty is invited to come to the water that is on offer. Anyone at all who comes to Jesus will not be rejected. If you need to hear it again, for the people in the back, anyone at all who comes to Jesus will not be rejected. In my best estimation, that'll preach. It preached for the Isaiahic community in exile who were wondering what God was all about. It preached for Jesus's first century Jewish context who were wondering what in the world is this weird rabbi talking about. And it preaches for us today too. Looking back to Isaiah chapter 55, the text that we read during worship, it says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? You hear the resonances of what Jesus is talking about from this passage. He says, listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. The exile, it's over. This is partially what Jesus comes to announce. The people that are still waiting, your wait is over. You don't need to continually search for bread that spoils because you've been invited to the feast where you can eat for free, where you can have bread in abundance, where you can buy wine with no money. Anyone, anyone at all who comes to Jesus will not be rejected. For some of you, that's a high hill for you to climb. I'm not gonna explain it to you, but I'm gonna read it one more time. Anyone at all who comes to Jesus will not face rejection. Believe in him, trust in him, align yourself with him, be about what he is about. And I do believe that sometimes we, we forsake this next line, but it's part of the deal, moving away from your sins and with all humility, pull up a chair and delight in the richest affairs. It begins now and it continues on throughout eternity. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. 
If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.